Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Matthew chapter 2. Once you have found that second chapter of the book of Matthew, if you'd be so kind as to stand with me for the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. And it reads like this, Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard the king, uh, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. When he gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go. And search carefully for the young child, and when he had found, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Father, this morning we come before you with exceedingly great joy because of who your son Jesus Christ is. He has shown your glory to this world, Father, and we desire to bask in that glory this morning. Let us do that, Father, by being tentative, attentive to your word, by listening with hearts that are tuned to you. Father, by hearing you speak in a still, small voice, accomplish that by making very little of me and very much of you. As we speak your word this morning. This we pray in the name of your precious son Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's that time of year that brings us a lot of joy, doesn't it? A lot of joy. There's something joyful about riding around and seeing all the decorations that are out. The lights, the trees, the bows, the wreaths, the the manger scenes that are out, it just brings joy to your heart. I know every day whenever I come into my community, coming home at night, it seems like someone else has run across another batch of lights they've strung out somewhere. And you know, it just kind of brings a little bit of joy to see that light in the darkness. This season, we, we do celebrate and we do have joy. It just seems all things that go on around the Christmas season just brings us a certain amount of joy. But let me ask you this. Have you ever stopped to think, why? you ever stop to think why the Christmas season just brings you joy? Is it, is it the fact we have lights? If it's, if it's the lights or the wreaths or the trees that bring us joy, why don't we just leave them up all year long? You know, if, uh, why? Yes, I heard somebody say they do. <laughs> if that's you, don't raise your hand. Everybody's going to look. But think about it for a minute. Why do we have joy? What, what is it that brings us joy? How? How can we have joy in, the, in a world like this that we live in? <laughs> see, see, we all want to find a way to have joy in our lives. We all want to find a way to joy, have joy. We, we often, as I talked about with the kids this morning, we often associate joy with 
happiness. But as was so eloquently said by one of the kids this morning, those two things are very different. Those two things are very different. You know, sometimes we seek joy, but we find it in happiness, and we think we found joy, but, but they're not the same thing. You see, being happy is defined as feeling pleasure or good fortune with something. Feeling pleasure or good fortune with something. It, it speaks of a happenstance in our life. A happenstance in our life. Something happens that we like. Something good goes on in our life. And guess what? We're happy. On the backside of that coin, something bad happens in our life. We're unhappy. Isn't that the way life works for us? We set out to seek joy, but we base our joy because we think joy and happiness are the same on external circumstances. You want to know why so many people don't have joy in their life? External circumstances. External circumstances you can't control. So when you can't control it, you can't guarantee yourself happiness or joy as you may look at those combined together. So happiness is based on an external happening in your life that gives you happiness when the result is correct. Joy, on the other hand, is internal. Joy is eternal. See, joy is really trusting in something. Choosing to trust in something that, yes, gives you happiness, but it gives you joy in your life. The something doesn't even have to have happened because we're not basing it on external. We're basing it on something that is internal you see today we're going to look at a very familiar christmas passage it's you know christmas is a difficult time for pastors i know you think hey it ought to be easy it's the same old story just get up and retell it it could be done that way but that seems to short circuit the whole idea of studying the word for what god has to say to you today now doesn't it you know, Christmas season, I, I, I reach back and pull out Christmas passages that we've all heard before. And unfortunately, we've heard them so often, we've become callous to their message. You know, and, and today we're going to look at a very familiar story. And it's a story that really demonstrates what the characteristics are of true joy. Have you ever thought about that with the wise men? That, that there are characteristics displayed by the wise men in this story that shows what true joy should be in our lives. It tells us how we should have joy. Today, I want to look at the story, and I want to look at it from a different angle uh, than, than maybe we've looked at it before. I want to look at the story of this wise man as they, as they approach this house that, that this baby Jesus is in. And I want to look at it from a, an angle that really focuses on verse 10 of this passage. When it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. You see, let me start with this question. As today, I open God's Word and I expound for you what it says and pull out not what I think it says, but what God said when He wrote it. I want you to think about this question in your heart and your mind today as we, as we talk about what God's saying to us about joy in this passage. What is it that causes you to rejoice with exceedingly great joy? Because that's the blaring question of the text. What is it that causes you to rejoice with exceedingly great joy? I think there are five things in this passage, five things that, that uh, the wise men can tell us about how we are to have exceedingly great joy in our life. The very first thing I noticed whenever I read this passage is that they believed in the king. The very first thing that, that 
led to their joy was the fact they believed in the king. Look what it says in verse 1 and 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Why did they come? It tells us. It come, they came asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? See, they didn't come looking for some obscure baby laying in a manger. They came looking for the king. The wise men had left the east. They traveled from that region of basically Persia. And they traveled towards a place that it says it did not even know where it was. See, because they came asking, where? They just left and traveled. Traveled in a particular direction. They, they knew they were supposed to go apparently. And they, they knew what they were looking for in this king. But they had no idea where they were going. <laughs> they apparently were led by God to go. So they went. Seems like a strange statement when you think about wise men now, doesn't it? But it seems like they must have been led by God to go. We see this exact same picture in the lives of others. Abram. Leave your family and head to a place I'll tell you when you get close. The children of Israel, we talked about in Sunday school this morning. You're going to leave Egypt. I'm going to take you to a place. You'll figure it out when I get you there. It's the same pattern you see spread throughout Scripture in the life of those that God's leading. But how did they even know about God? See, that's the question that just jumps in the middle of my mind when I think about the fact they're being led by God, but how did they even know about God? These guys are called wise men. They don't get the best rap, do they? When we look at them in Scripture, we don't see them as being the best rap, especially when you look in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, if you've been with us on Wednesday night in the book of Daniel, we've talked about the wise men. And it actually answers this question, how did they know and what did they know? It's actually answered from the book of Daniel, which is kind of odd. It's kind of odd. I thought about it as I was sitting yesterday putting this together and I was thinking that question through in my mind and I had no answer. And I was about to give up on the question and just remove it from the sermon because I didn't know how to answer the question and suddenly it dawned on me. We talked about it whenever we got together on Wednesday nights. If you remember, uh, Daniel and, and us talking about this wise man, Daniel in chapter 2, in chapter 2 of Daniel, it tells us this story of Nebuchadnezzar who had this dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he could not remember the dream much less what it meant and it just terrified him. This dream just absolutely terrified Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't know what to do with it. He didn't know what it was. He didn't know how to interpret it. So he reached out to those intelligent people in his administration, in his, in his country. And, and, and it calls it in chapter two, they were the magicians, astrologers, uh, uh, sorcerers, I believe it was, of the Chaldeans. There was one group named the Chaldeans. There, were, there was these groups that were pulled together. They were basically the cream of the crop when it came to intelligence in this, in this massive kingdom, this, this great kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar's called Babylon. He asked them to tell him, he says, hey, tell me what this dream is, and then, and then tell me what the interpretation of the dream is. If you know anything about Daniel 2, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, you'd understand that those guys said, can't you just give us a hint? Can't you just give us a little piece of it, Neb? If you'll just help us out with a couple of the details, we'll fill in the rest for you. And he said, no, tell me the dream. And tell me, if you're so smart, you're the best of the best, you tell me. That's what I pay you for, I think is what he probably would have said as the king. And we know what happens. He, they couldn't. 
They couldn't figure it out. They, they couldn't figure out what the dream was or the interpretation. Matter of fact, they said, who in the world could do that, King Neb? Who in the world could do that? It tells us there in, in that Daniel chapter 2 passage that it kind of upset the king just a, a touch. Just a touch, he was, he was upset for, it says in the second chapter of Daniel, verse 12, it says, whenever they said they couldn't, it says, for this reason, the king was angry and very fur- furious, and he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Hmm, a connection to our story today. Neb said, you can't tell me? You're supposed to be so smart. Heads off with all of you. Well, that's where Daniel comes into the picture. If you remember the story, Daniel works out a way that he can get an audience with the king through one of the administrators of the king. He works out to to get into uh, the face of the king and have a little talk with him and explain things to him. And, And he works this out in such a way that that he gets brought before the king, and the king tells him what he wants, and Daniel says, hey, why don't you just give me a little bit of time? Just give me a little bit of time, and I'll come back and do this, Jed. He he goes back, and he gets with his three friends, and they pray before the Lord, and the Lord grants Daniel the wisdom, as it says in verse 1, to know the dream and to interpret the dream. In chapter 1, it says that God had laid on Daniel the ability to know dreams and interpret those dreams. And God laid on his mind and heart what it is that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed that so terrified him. Daniel comes back in before the king. He gives him the story of, of the dream that he had, and he gives him the interpretation. He gives the interpretation of that dream. You say, well, what in the world has that got to do with the wise men at the manger? If you've got your Bibles in front of you, flip over to Daniel. If you happen to be using a pew Bible, you'll find it over on page 422. The book of Daniel. If you get the Psalms, Proverbs, anywhere in that neighborhood, you're gone just a touch too far. Just flip back towards the New Testament. The book of Daniel, chapter 2. As chapter 2 ends up, down in verse 46, it says this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. So look at the response. This Daniel comes in. This Daniel makes a, a, a proclamation of what the dream is. He, he tells him the interpretation. The king is just so excited about it. He falls down before Daniel, and he says, bring in the offerings for this guy. Let's, let's do it a big incense to him. Man, he has really done something. Then he goes on to say, The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of God, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel. Hmm. It says that he gave him many great gifts. And here's where he promoted him too. He says in verse 48, in the middle there, he says, And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. This little Daniel. This little Daniel had been taken into captivity, and Babylon was now ruler over the whole province, but it didn't stop there. (laughs) Look what it says next. He was also the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. You make the connection. We have wise men walking up to a manger some time later that did it at the bequest the leadership the guidance of God where did they find out about God how did they know who this God was what is it that they were seeking how did they know about any of this coming from a place called Persia an ungodly place called Persia it's the influence of one young man 
that refused to give up on his standard that God was God and he was holy and he was worthy of all his worship, that he would follow him regardless of what the king requested, and he did exactly what God said, and he was set over the wise men. What do you think he taught the wise men? He taught him what the king had said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, a revealer of secrets since you have revealed this secret. What did Daniel teach the wise men? The only wise are the ones who put their trust in God Almighty. We see it demonstrated at the manger. We see it demonstrated at the manger. He taught them today that this God is the great I am. He's the sovereign of all things. He's faithful and he's true. They would have learned it from Daniel. They'd have learned to put their trust in Daniel by watching the life of Daniel and the trials that came up, by watching the life of his friends as they were thrown into fiery furnaces, as they were tried to made to be eat food that they didn't want to eat, as, as they were placed in a place where there was lions that were supposed to eat them. They would have seen the the life of what a a godly person should look like demonstrated before them. And that's what they would have learned. So then when God spoke to the hearts of the wise men and said, go, guess what they did? They went. They went back over to Matthew. Back over to Matthew. It says that they were looking then for this king of the Jews. So they understood who it was that they were seeking for. This king. This one that would be over the Jews. They understood that the Jews were God's chosen people. They learned that from Daniel who was a Jew. So, so they learned about this, this king. They, they were being led there by the, by the Holy Spirit. For it says in the last part of that second verse there in, in Matthew 2, it says that where they were looking for the king of the Jews, it says, for they had seen his star. There was a gigantic H there, I hope in your Bible, that says his star in the east and have come to worship him. There's been many a person who's trying to decide what the star is. I'm going to give you a snippet of what I believe it to be this morning because it's a sermon all in itself. But what happens when God shows up somewhere, as in the story with the shepherds on the hillside this morning. When God appears, what shows up? His glory. How's His glory demonstrated in the Bible? Light. Light. I believe the reason the wise men knew where to go is because the glory of God shone brightly over the Son of God as He laid in a manger in a place called Bethlehem. They knew where to go because they understood that that was the glory of God, that they were seeking the king of the Jews. So they knew that there was a king. They knew that there was a star that led them, this glory of God. And they knew the one that they were looking for deserved their worship because they said they were going to worship him. Not just look at a cute little baby in a manger as we do in the hospital when one's born. We all run out to see what does the baby look like. It got ten fingers, ten toes, a pretty little smile. Which one of the parents does it look like? No, they could care less. They wanted to come worship. They wanted to come worship. And there was nothing and there was no one that was going to stop them. That's the beauty of the story. There was nothing that was going to stop them. Herod tried. You see it in verse 3 when it said, When the king heard this, he was troubled. Not only was he troubled, but all of Jerusalem was troubled. Everybody became troubled. At the announcement of a king? Everybody fell apart over the announcement of a king? Go back and look who Herod is. Go back and look what Herod does. You understand why they were troubled. Herod was obviously troubled, agitated, because he realized, I thought I was the king of the Jews. 
What do you mean there's another one? There's another one? That means I'm not. I'm out of a job. All of his power was related in who he was as king of the Jews, and he was about to lose that. I understand why he was agitated, but why the people? I don't think they liked Herod very much because of the things he did, but what they did know about Herod. When Herod got upset, people lost their lives. That's what they knew about Herod. See, they knew about Herod that when Herod was mad, when, when, when Herod decided he didn't want to do something or didn't want something done to him, what did he do? All you got to do is flip to chapter 2 towards the end in Matthew, starting in verse 16. You go home and read it. I'll sum it up for you. Kill all the firstborn. There's the answer. Why was everybody troubled? Herod was a killer. Herod was a killer, so they, they were all troubled. They were all agitated. It said he gathered his religious leaders. You notice in that fourth verse of Matthew 2. Sort of relates back kind of to what we read in Daniel just a little bit ago. He gathers together all these leaders, these smart ones, and he, and he begins inquiring of them, saying, Who is this? And notice he doesn't say, Where is the king born? He says, Where is the Christ born? Whoa. Where did he figure that out? Was that written in the I'm the king of the Jews manual? I don't think so. I think he learned that from the wise men. See, when the wise men showed up asking for the king of the Jews, he probably wanted to know, what do you mean the king of the Jews? And he explained, they explained to him more than likely, there is a king that's going to come. It's been prophesied. And what is that king going to be? Not a ruler of the people in a governmental sense. He's going to be the savior of the people. And this Herod says, where is this Savior going to be born? Where is this Christ going to be born? You see this whole change in, in the language, but it's still the same person. They, they recognize as kings of the Jews was the Savior of the people. And now Herod's asking, where is this Christ to be born? The religious leaders tell him, that this Christ was going to be born in a place in Bethlehem. How did they know that he was going to be born in a place called Bethlehem? It's pretty easy. If you've got Micah in your Bible, we won't flip there now for time. Go back and look at it. Micah, somewhere around chapter 5, I believe it is, makes this statement that's quoted here in verse 6 of Matthew 2 when it says, But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler, the king, who will shepherd my people Israel, the Christ. See the picture. He tells him, the, those religious leaders tell him, hey, it's pretty simple here, Herod. The prophecy says it's Bethlehem. And it says he's, yes, going to be the king of the Jews, and he's going to be the Christ. Herod tries to get these wise men then to find. He says, you go, you go, you go search. You go to Bethlehem. I tell you what, send me a letter. Send me a text, an email where you find him because I want to go too. I'd love to go worship him right along with you. That's what Herod says. And off go the wise men. None of this deterred the wise men. None of this changed their thought process. None of this changed their heart. They knew that God was leading them to see this Christ, the King of the Jews, and they wanted to go worship Him, and not even Herod could scare them off the path. And they were headed out. So they believed. They believed in the King. That was the first thing. The second thing is they sought the King. 
They sought the king. See, it's not enough to just believe that Jesus is Jesus. It's not enough to just believe he's king of the Jews. It's not enough just to believe he is Christ. You must seek after him for you personally. See, they could have been like Herod and sat in the throne room and said, yeah, there's a king, there's a Christ being born. I understand that and left it at that. But not the wise men. They said there is a king, there is a Christ being born, and we are going to seek after him. Nothing about this story seems very practical if you think about it. They've been traveling a long distance from harsh lands. They, they've probably been down places that there weren't even roads. We tend to think there was only three of them because there's three gifts. But, I mean, let's be smart about it for a minute. The wise men probably didn't tra- travel in triads. They probably traveled in groups. There would have been a whole bunch of them to take care of and get to the place. And this Bethlehem they were going, this Bethlehem was some small little village that, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot there. We've, we've seen stories of it. It just gets packed. And this place they were heading wouldn't have accommodations for them. There was nothing really practical about this whole journey. No one else, it seemed, even was making the journey. We don't see where they bumped into some Shepherds headed along the way, or they, they bumped into a group from over here heading that way, and they carpooled together, all headed to the same place. We just see this band of wise men heading out. Apparently the only ones on the journey. The present king was certainly unhappy about the news, and it was kind of foolish, if you think about it, to go against a king that was known to behead the ones that went against him, didn't it? That seems a little odd. How would you like to be the one to bring the news to the king that, hey, your replacement's just been born? (laughs) I don't think so. It doesn't seem very practical to me. What if they traveled all this way and there is no baby? What if they went to all this trouble, they stirred up Herod, they got him all upset, and there is no baby, or it's just a baby. It's nothing else. We got it all wrong. What? What? If they were following their own thoughts and processes and how they read things and their own will, really, and what what if there was no God? What if all this was being done out of their own mind? The wise men? What if there wasn't even a God and they'd gone through all this and now they've stirred up the kingdom? And what if? There's one thing I know about taking chances. There's one thing I know about taking risks. No one ever wants to take them. We see these wise men taking a chance and a risk if you really think about it. They left a place. They were known as the wise men in Persia. They headed across the country. They upset the king, and they're headed to a place they don't know where it is till Herod tells them. They know what they're looking for, but there's so many ifs. There's so many ifs. There's, there's a ton of things that could go wrong. But you know, there's also another thing I know about taking chances and risk in life. You know, the... The greater the chance, the greater the reward. The, the crazier things may seem in life that God leads you to do, the greater reward for being obedient to that thing. And these wise men stood on the cusp of something that was very ridiculous, if you really think about it, in one sense. What if all of this wound up with them understanding that God really wasn't even God? Wow, what an ending to a story. What if the promises they learned about the Messiah weren't true? (laughs) You know, but they realized they weren't going to see just any old baby. They weren't just walking up to a manger to see how cute and cuddly this baby was. It wasn't a pretty scene set up with nice hay and 
these around. By this time, Jesus would have been out of that manger and, and into a home, and they weren't just heading to a nice palace to see a king. See, they were heading to see God in flesh. That's what they understood. They were heading to see God in flesh. He was the king of a coming kingdom. He was the one they came who came to seek and to save. He was the one who came to set the captives free. He was the one who left heaven and he came to earth to fix a broken relationship between man and God. You see, he was and is Jesus. The one who came to save his people from their sins. To them, there was no chance greater than the reward. The reward of this Jesus. When you grasp the full reality of who Jesus is, the chance you take in seeking him is nothing compared to reward of finding him. You see, look at what Jesus said over in Matthew 7. Matthew 7. He says this in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Jesus said, if you'll ask, seek, and knock, there is a reward behind the door. There is something there. And he relates the giving of the reward, as you read the rest of that story, to this father giving to a child. And he says, what father wouldn't give a child what's best for him? What sinful man that, that hasn't done everything right wouldn't do the thing that's best for their child? He says, with that picture in mind, he says, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask? You know, the chance of raising a hand and knocking on the door to seek Jesus. The asking for Jesus to come into your life. The, the searching for him in hopes of finding him for your life. To see if he is who he says he is. Has a reward. And it's given by God who is far greater than any other father we know. He is a father that will give much more, much more from heaven. Those things of his that are good. And what is good and precious and righteous Jesus, he comes in the form of salvation. Those who seek the king seek the greatest gift that has ever been given. And it's Jesus. Jesus said, if you only ask, if you only ask, that gift of Jesus Christ is there for the giving. What does having Jesus as your Lord and Savior afford you? Write this down. We don't have time to turn to it. But Isaiah 61 verse 10 tells you that it brings you joy in God. Luke 10. Luke 10. is you read through Luke 10, you come down to a passage about the 20th verse. And Luke 10, it, it, it's where he's already, uh, when the 70 have been sent out on a mission, and they're, and they're coming back, and they're, they're talking about, gosh, man, this was a great mission trip. We saw God show up in marvelous ways. There was things done in all kinds of power. And wow, Jesus, you, you are something. God is somebody. And they were talking about all the things they saw happen. And he makes this statement. They make this statement. They said, even the demons are, are subject to us, Jesus. Uh, and they're subject to us because of, of, of your name. 
We saw these amazing things happen, and he, these amazing things happened. It's all because of your name, and they were, they were astounded at it. But then in verse 20 of Luke chapter 2, or actually he says in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 20, he says this to them. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice. In this, don't rejoice in the fact that the demons responded because of my name. Don't rejoice in the fact that you saw all these wonderful things. He says, here's what you rejoice in. He says that the serpents are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You know what should bring us joy? What should bring us joy is not the great things that we see God do in and through us. The thing that should bring us joy it's Jesus. And the fact that our name is written in heaven because we sought and we found the king who's now the king of our lives. So they believed in the king. They sought the king very quickly. Third, they received the king. Back in Matthew, Matthew chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11, it says they, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary as mother. And it says they fell down and they worshipped him. Not only did they believe in the king, they sought the king, but they received this king. It says they entered the house, they saw the baby, they saw the mother Mary. But the first thing that they decided to do when they saw this king of the Jews, this Christ child, was fall down before him. Fall down before him. Bow before someone is a sign of, of humbling yourself before this authority figure. It shows belief in the position of a, a person or what this person has. It shows a willingness to yield. When the wise men came into the presence of Jesus, it says they, they bowed down. And it says he, they bowed before him there as if he was the king. Why? Because that's what he was. Even as a baby in the manger, he was their king. For then it was a sign of acceptance. God had led them to go and find the king. They had let nothing stop them, and now they bowed in his presence. Church, when's the last time you've bowed in the presence of Jesus just because you realize he's the king? When's the last time you have bent your knee to the kingship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, we love to think about that little baby in the manger, and we love to think about what it would feel like to hold him in our hands, to play with his little fingers, to smell that baby smell. But do you realize he's the king? The proper response is not to cuddle him. The proper response is to bow before him. To bow before him. Many today have wisdom of who this Jesus is, they think, because they've heard the stories. Many sit in our churches that have heard the stories so often they've become calloused. In some sense, they have an understanding understand of what they believe this Jesus to be. And now they kind of wait for the end of the journey so that they can reap a reward. In other words, they got saved because they wanted a ticket to heaven. They do not have... As Jesus said in John 10, 10, I believe it is, they do not have life and have it more abundantly because they believe the abundant life starts the day they leave this earth and head into a place called heaven. It's not what Jesus says. He says we 
have salvation. And it changes where we spend eternity, but it doesn't have to affect our place here on earth, we think. But Jesus said, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Having me as your Lord and your Savior changes the now. Eternity starts today. The day that you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Not the day that you breathe your last breath. Jesus says, I came to give you life and to have it more abundantly. In what sense would it make that he would give you life and leave you if the abundance didn't start today? See, true joy in your life comes from yielding to the lordship of the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he has a name and his name is Jesus. The wise men didn't depend on their wisdom as wise men. They knew wisdom only comes from God. And that led them to this king. The king that they believed in, the king that they saw, the king that they received. And fourth, there was a king that they worshipped. You see in that passage there in the 11th verse of Matthew 2, it says, They came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother, they fell down, honored him as king, and it says, and worshipped him. Their response to being in the presence of the king was to worship him. It says they did it in humility by bowing before him. They also did it by bringing these gifts that we read about. That's why we think there's three kings versus three gifts. <laughs> Notice it tells us what the gifts are. It says there's this gold, which is a very expensive metal. And what did it symbolize? Jesus' deity. They brought along with them this frankincense, which was this very costly perfume. It symbolizes his sinfulness, his perfection. They brought along this myrrh. This myrrh is a very bitter herb. Why a bitter herb for the baby? It was to symbolize the suffering that he would have inflicted upon him because of your sin and mine. A baby laid in the manger was headed to a life of suffering because of us. These wise men, when they came, came to humble themselves before him as king and to worship. All these things were given for the glory of God. And they were very liberal in the use of their gifts. They didn't bring the cheapest or the, the smallest. They brought the most precious Notice it kind of speaks to how we must think about our gifts and what God's given us. You know what? Not just the monetary offerings, not just those things that we put in the plate when it's passed. You know what? Quite honestly, it's easy to give. It's, it's a no-brainer. It's easy to give. Matter of fact, do you realize most people give in the plate so they can check off the box of giving to God so that they don't have to give up their life to God? It gives them in their heart a clean conscience to be able to say, God, I gave, I put money in the plate. I did my part for the spread of the gospel. What God's really asking you to do is to give yourself to the spread of the gospel, not just your money. You see, these guys came and get everything. See, the true essence of this worship was signifying the worthiness of God to be worshipped. We see it in the gifts. For God alone is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our worship of Him. And He's worthy of it with clean hands and a pure heart, the Bible says. In other words, we just don't 
come before God in the old way. We come before God open, our heart and our life open before Him, asking for true forgiveness for those things in our life. And we worship Him in spirit and in truth with everything that we are and have. You see, they believed the King. They sought the King. They received the King. They worshiped the King. And finally, this led to them following the King. This is often the part of the story I don't think we ever pay any attention to, and I'll make it quick. It's in one verse. It's in the 12th verse of that Matthew chapter 2 passage. When it says this, Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. If you take notes in your Bible, I hope you just underline two words. Another way way what happens when you believe in jesus what happens when you seek after jesus what happens when you find him and you receive jesus and what happens when you worship jesus with all that you are you leave a different way you leave different. I'll say this in hopes that you know my heart. If you come in this place on Sunday morning to worship God and you leave the same, you didn't worship God at all. See, it's not about what you get. It's about what you give. See, church isn't about, did I get what I wanted? Church is about, did I give what God asked me to give? Maybe it's the person sitting in the pew next to you that just needs a hug today. Maybe it's giving of yourself in service and in the teaching of the Word in Bible study. Maybe it's giving as you as you decorate the place as the ladies did yesterday so beautifully. Maybe, maybe it's just giving in, in several ways. Maybe it's just giving over to God everything that you have. If you leave the worship of God unchanged, you never worship God. And you see, these guys, it says, were divinely led. God led. God warned them. God told them. The divine said, go, but go a different way. They left the house. They traveled a different way. They headed home by a different path. No one, no one who meets Christ with a sincere heart ever returns the same way. Never. See, meeting Jesus always changes your heart. Meeting Jesus always changes your head. Meeting Jesus always changes your hands. See, in obedience, they went a different way, and that way led them home. See, true joy in life can only come from following Jesus because your heart, mind, and life has been changed. It's where joy comes from. It's impossible to truly believe in Jesus and not be changed. It's impossible to truly seek after Jesus and not be changed. It's impossible to receive Jesus and not be changed. It's impossible to worship Jesus and not be changed. And it's absolutely impossible to be a follower of Jesus 
and not be changed. Ask what I asked when, you, when we started this morning. What is it that causes you to rejoice with exceedingly great joy? Is it because you can look at your life and know that you've been changed by Jesus? How has Jesus changed your heart? How has he changed your heart this morning? Has he brought to your mind that you need to surrender everything to him? How has he changed your head this morning? Has he brought to your mind that you need to abide in his word? I think the numbers written on that board will tell you there's not many abiding. I'm not even going to look. Has it, has it changed your hands? Are you loving others as Jesus loved you? See, the season of joy comes from being changed. Will you allow God to change those areas of your life this morning? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.